welcome to the Pastured Pig Podcast, where we share the successes and challenges of raising pigs on pasture. We talk to producers all over the country, from small homesteads to large commercial pasture operations. Whether you're new to pastured pigs or have been raising hogs for decades, we hope you hear new ideas and new perspectives on pasturing hogs. Here's your host, Troy McClung. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Pastured Pig Podcast. A little bit of a gap since our last one. We've had a crazy September. Uh, Just to give some quick updates, in September we had the Homesteaders of New England Conference. Uh, Then we turned that into a vacation, so we spent um, about a week and a half up in New England. Really enjoyed that time, enjoyed the conference. It was fun. Uh, Got to meet a lot of new people. And we came back. We had our second chicken processing uh, to wrap up the year. And then we took uh, our first half of pigs to the processor. So September just went by like a breeze. And um, here we are already in the 10th of October when I'm recording this bumper. And I am due to get a podcast episode out. And I promise you we're going to get back in line. In fact, I'm going to go ahead and post two. I'm going to post them. I'm going to post the one you're hearing now, of course. <laughs> and then I'm going to have another one already in the queue for next week. And that's one. It's more timely. It's dealing, it's, we're talking with U.S. Department of Agriculture about African swine fever. So it's, uh, it's timely. It ties in with their campaign they're trying to build as, uh, awareness of. So look for that next week. But this week, we are going down to Tennessee and we're going to hang out with Cliff Davis of Pig and Leaf. And Cliff has got a lot of stuff going on. And I really like um, all the things that he's got. Probably you need to even get him back on the podcast at some point and drill down on some of the things uh, that he talks about. But this episode will just be an introduction to his setup, what he's got going on. And then we can go from there in the future. But I'm going to go ahead and get into that interview. And we'll just do some housekeeping on the back end. Today, we're going to zip on down to South Central Tennessee, just uh, south of Nashville, and we're going to visit Pig and Leaf, and the owner of Pig and Leaf is Cliff Davis. So welcome, Cliff. Hello. Thank you. All right. Well, I appreciate you coming on the podcast, and I got to say, I've, um, I've, I've started snooping around some of your stuff on social media. You've got a lot going on at Pig and Leaf. It, it makes sound like you've only got two things down there, a pig and a leaf, but you got way more than that, right? <laughs> yeah, we have a whole lot going on. It's been a, it's been a love-hate relationship, as some of you probably know. Yeah, definitely. So, so give me that, uh, that 40,000-foot elevation view of, of what you've got going on down there. So your setup, uh, size of your farm, how long you've been doing it, that type of thing. Yeah, we have uh, 50 acres that once was clear cut um, that we we produce vegetables, really high-end vegetables like salad crops. That's our cash flow. And then we do uh, flowers and craft materials. Uh, those are all sold at markets. And then we also do woodland pork. So we have a farrow to finish operation and we also sell breed stock. Oh, wow. Wow. Okay, so I got to ask you. So you you went through the leafs. Sounds like the leaf is is kind of bigger than the pig, or the leaf started before the pig in that situation. Um, that's well. We've been gardeners for a long time, and then I, when we first got the land, the regrowth from the from the clear cut started growing back so quickly that we were out there kind of chopping and dropping and doing things and going, there's just no way. <laughs> and, um, we quickly realized that we needed some help from animal friends. So we started building chicken tractors and moving those around the landscape to build gardens. And cause it just basically wants to be an Eastern deciduous forest. Exactly. And so everything it does <clears throat> is wants to go back to that. And then we were trying to establish nut trees and fruit trees, but the regrowth is so fast. We brought in some goats. We brought in, and then I bought a boar and two gilts from a neighbor um, down the road. And that was kind of the end of, that was the start of the pig. And then we'd always been gardeners. We'd been gardeners for 25 years. Um, So that kind of <clears throat> has always been there, but the pig and leaf part, the leaf was really that, that, in, you know, the market gardening 
the vegetables, intensive vegetable production, salad crops being the cash flow, pigs being the kind of the love affair that I have with breeding and and uh, and hogs. And then in so doing, we also stumbled upon my wife absolutely loving flowers. Hmm. So um, in so doing, we, we basically started growing flower crops as well, kind of split the gardens in half. And um, and then the pigs have kind of they've kind of been pretty steady for about 14 years. Um, we raise them outdoor uh, in huts that I've designed and built over the last 10 years. And now we're starting to move a little bit indoor with a barn and um, some shelters and looking forward to some more barns in the future, but more open, nothing like what, you know, what people probably think of when you think of barns, just to make management and their life a little better. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Give them, give them those options type of thing. So uh, more permanent uh, infrastructure in that situation, I guess. All right. So it sounds exactly. like sounds like you've got yeah. a pretty diversified uh, polyculture going on there, which uh, which is something that my goodness, even though this is the pastured pig podcast, I think I beat that uh, drum constantly. That uh, taking a business, a farm business, and having just one specific thing is is risky. But if you can do a polyculture and have all these different income streams, then you've got uh, some some leverage there when the time comes, especially when it's cash flow season. <laughs> you got to figure. That's all very that true. Out. Yeah. yeah, that was designed to to make sure that the vegetables, which are very quick crops, but they make the cash flow. And then, as you know, feed cost and all these things that have to do with hogs. Um, that can bind up a lot of cash pretty quick. So um, it's just the way we designed the infrastructure of the business. We couldn't really do chickens like everybody else does. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just moving chickens across our landscape is a nightmare. Um, so we decided to, for the cash flow, we would we would end up doing high turnover vegetable crops. Yeah, yeah. So, so let's talk about that a little bit more. So your, um, your 50 acres there in Tennessee, is that uh, is that rolling hills? Is that mountainous? Is that tabletop flat? What are we, what are we dealing with down there? It's a finger ridge um, off of a main ridge. Lots of finger ridges off the main ridge. We have one of the ridges, hmm. so we have the two. We have three creeks, so two on the right side, two on the left side, which is north and south, and then one on the east side. They kind of all pour into each other. There's two springs. The the landscape is, is non-agricultural, mm -hmm. so perfect for hogs, honestly. Not the best for vegetables, but we got it that way. And um, it's church. You know, if you think of, like, base road base, that's what we have, yeah. um, which is, is, is close to – and then, you know, that, that particular landscape also, it's flat at the top and then drops down. Um, we own the whole ridge, so there's one way in, one way out. Um, but that type of landscape on the ridges turns into concrete basically for the hogs, um, which makes dry lotting kind of makes sense. You know, we do a lot of dry lot, what we call dry lot. Um, that's where our sows are. That makes a lot of sense. There's still tree cover and canopy. Um, and then when we rest those areas, the grasses and everything grow back, of course, but those are pretty consistently dry, dry lotted and the, the, um, the rock kind of come to the surface and then you have rock everywhere, of course. Yeah. Yeah. I find that topography fascinating because it's exactly the opposite of what uh, our area in West Virginia is because we have ridge lines, but they are usually pretty narrow at top. So everybody lives down in the haulers, you know, they live down in the, in the watersheds and that's where you do all your work. And, and rarely do you find people that have access up to ridge top. I mean, if you want to road a ridge top, you got to spend a lot of money in building that infrastructure. So we have the exact opposite. That's why we have flooding and runoff issues and stuff because everything's yeah. coming down into our area. Whereas, which what I've seen in Central Tennessee and in Central Kentucky is same way that that a lot of these um, finger ridges is is really the the majority of the surface area where people reside, and they just have these little. Uh, uh, little watersheds or drains or even um, I wouldn't call them canyons, but little little gullies that that they yeah they, I've seen a lot of a lot of the old farms in Central Kentucky where they just kind of that's where they toss a lot of their debris. They just kind of take it over there. That's that's kind of the yep. uh, the old uh, treetops and everything. You just toss them over the little little gulch there and 
Yeah, that's exactly the same kind of landscape here. Just have a main ridge with a bunch of fingers off of it, you know, just like your hand. And, um, you know, eastern deciduous forest, mostly oaks. But as the regrowth started happening, we would clear some of the trees out that we wouldn't want. And then we would plant in mulberries and chestnuts. And there's already persimmons, so uh, apples, stuff like that, which I was introduced by a guy named um j russell smith who wrote a book called tree crops Hmm. a permanent agriculture that book kind of blew me away back in the day and it was really about it was a cultural historical perspective of um tree dominant cultures but it just so happened to have pigs in it too so um i kind of fell in love with his work and i've been trying to mimic that ever since yeah interesting very good. I'm gonna I'm gonna put that in my notes. What was the name of the book again? Yeah, J. Russell Smith. Okay. Tree crops, a permanent agriculture. That's where Bill Mollison got permanent agriculture from okay. when he started permaculture. Okay. Um, as a you know two words into one. Right. Right. Yeah, I'll check that out because I uh, I like that type of uh, like that type of reading. That's good stuff there. So, so how, that's a great book. <laughs> so Cliff, how, how long have you guys been at this? I mean, this, this is not something that happened overnight. You guys have developed this for a while, correct? Correct. Yeah. I've been, uh, we've been on this property 15 years, but prior to that, we had farming experience in South, in Central America. We lived down there and helped manage a exotic fruit farm. Hmm. Um, I worked on a couple, you know, I did in the beginning, I did a lot of like, uh, I guess you would call them apprenticeships um, on market gardens. And that was probably since I was 28, 29 years old. And um, we lived, we had a farm in Florida. So yeah, we've been at this for a while. Um, But then we ended up in Tennessee and lo and behold, we bought land here. And um, it was just one of those things where it worked out perfect the land was good price and we stayed and uh we like it here it's starting to get uh developed a lot we were an hour and a half away from nashville but which is a good market there's nothing wrong with that part but it's also starting to kind of trickle down into this area and we're seeing the development happen now Mm. which it used to not be like that at all um so that's a little saddening but that's just the way it is yeah yeah, that's uh, that happens. We don't see it much yeah, in our state. We're, we're a shrinking state, but yeah, that I hear that all the time. You get close to a good market like that, and, and you've got that good distance, and then that market starts moving closer to you versus you moving closer to it. Correct. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's correct. Yeah, property values, I'm sure, are starting to creep up all around you, and and uh, um, it's kind of gone insane yeah. to tell you the truth. Our property is worth way more than we could ever imagine and um we don't really owe too much on it so it's kind of like what do you do you know yeah but we also have family here i have a grandchild here now i mean this is where we're at you know (laughs) yeah settled settled some roots i understand that man. yeah yeah that's right all right well excellent so so let's talk a little bit i i do want to get into some of these um some of these other details and and for you guys listening, I, I, you, you'll probably think, "Hey, wait a minute, Cliff! Cliff has a lot to talk about here. You're not going to cover all this in the in, in one episode." I've, I've already, I've already kind of uh, planted a seed in his mind that I'd like to have him back on because he has a lot of things going on, and there's a great a bit of drill done opportunity. But but we're going to hit kind of the overview stuff, and then I'll expect feedback from you all to to let me know. Hey, you know, maybe maybe have Cliff back on to talk more about this specific thing. But Cliff, here in a second, I want to get into some of your infrastructure. Uh, stuff that you've done with your, your your water management and all those type of things. But yeah. uh, before we get into that, I, I would like to talk real quick about your breed stock and kind of your mm-hmm. your collection of pigs. You said you're fair to finish. So your collection, how many sows we're talking about, how many boars, do you do you do AI, do you mix anything there and the genetics that you've settled on? Yeah, so I've settled on um, probably like a lot of people, I've tried a little bit of everything, but I settled on old Durocs and old Chesters. Mm. I recently found the Chesters. Um, I got really lucky there. They're not very common. They're very hard to find old Chesters anymore. When I say old, it would be the same idea behind Heritage. 
they just don't have a lot of modern genetics in them. Um, my lines don't have any modern genetics in them. If they do, I bring it in for a specific reason. Um, yeah, I have anywhere from 15 to 30 sows at a time. It just, it, when you're breeding and trying to make the breed better, you're, you're bringing in several gills for replacements. You're using them, but then you're going, no, they didn't work, you know, and you're, you're always trying to better the genetic pool. Um, and that's really just all about the maternal line. Um, it's always about the mother and it always about the mother and the grandmother. So, um, I do some AIing. I have uh, usually anywhere from 15 to 30, um, sows. And then I, I have boars. I have a, anywhere from three to five boars at a time. I usually do two to three per 10 sows is how I do it. But that's, that's for a breeder, you know, someone that's breeding breed stock. Um, as a farmer, I don't, I just don't really think you would need that. I think that would be possibly a waste of money if you do the numbers and pencil it out. That doesn't make any sense. Um, it makes sense as a breeder though, selling high quality breed stock to farmers, um, across the Southeast. So, um, I get my money back for those, those boars being here, but, um, the Chester whites I got as a maternal breed and, um, so far so good. I've had the farrowings and then the, the Durocs, the old line Durocs we have are from, uh, a man named Henry Fudge who we worked with for a while. And then since then he's gone his way and I've gone my way, but we, uh, it's an old line that's been bred line bred for 30 years. So it's very consistent, but it also, um, you need to cross it out. Mm. You know, you need to cross it to something else in order to get the vigor that you need in order to make money. Gotcha. Um, but this it's seed stock that that's what the important part to denote there is that that is seed stock. That is, you know, when they come up with DeKalb corn, or Monsanto corn. Those are two different seed stocks that are put together. Those are condensed seed stock that come together, produce a, a plant that produces however many bushels per acre, you know, jaw dropping numbers. It's the same thing with the pigs. It's the same thing with tomatoes. It's the same thing with everything. We make money on the F ones. Mm-hmm. You know, we make money on the ones that are the, are the sons and the daughters of those two line bred yep. herds. Yep. Um, and, and then I also play around with modern genetics just because I think the muscling and stuff is really important to add to the old lines um, just to get them up to weight because they're a little slower. They're like a heritage breed, you know, a red wattle or any of those old heritage breeds. They take a little longer. They have a little more fat cap. They have much better um, ruggedness and um, they're much more diverse in that, how they can live outside than a modern hog. Hmm. That's an important thing to know that modern hogs are a lot harder just to throw out in the woodlot and raise out, you know? So we're looking at old line heritage breeds. That's one of the words they use is old line, meaning that they don't have any modern genetics, um, and that they're rugged and, and that's, that's kind of. I guess that's the most important part is that's, that's our foundation. Our foundation are those lines. We can play with those as much as we want, but we cannot get rid of them. You know, those, that seed stock is the most important thing we have. And because of the line breeding, because of the inbreeding, because of all those things, it causes, you know, you you're going to have less vigor. You're going to have longer grow out. You're going to have reproductive trait problems. It's just because they've been inbred for so long. You're always trying to find a way out of that in the mix by selecting certain um, vigorous traits in one and not the other. There's all these things that come to breed stock. That's much different than just growing a hog out, taking it to the butcher and eating it. You know, it's just a lot different. Yeah. I remember, I can't remember who said it. I remember somebody saying the difference between line breeding and inbreeding is the results. (laughs) Yeah, that's It's line breeding. If you you get what you wanted, it's inbred if you don't. (laughs) That's true. That in in a lot of respects is true. And a lot of the time you don't get what you want. But with with inbred, line bred hogs, you're always getting a consistent crop. You know what you're going to get. And and that consistency is very important. If you talk to seed stock cattlemen, seed stock pigmen, it don't matter. They all say the same thing. 
and uh, and that's the difference. And we we raise those hogs and sell that breed stock to farmers so that they can get. That's why we brought in the Chester White. You know, they're having twelve and fourteen wean. Hmm. So that Chester White is rugged outdoor maternal line that they they can get the job done. So you sell a really good high quality boar red. Duroc, and then you sell some really good high quality maternal females to a farmer that wants to do some feral finishing they're going to get good results you know it's going to quicken the harvest for sure yeah yeah i, I gotta say i i don't know much about the chesters i've, I've heard of them but I, I really don't know much detail about them but it sounds like uh... they were the number one white hog in the united states for a long time weighing more hogs than any other hog hmm. they had a little more fat so they didn't get picked the Yorkshire and the land race got picked. But um, as far as I can tell in studying their history and their lineages, they were el- they were excellent mothers. They could handle the outdoors. They just did everything right. They had them a lot out in Missouri uh, back in the day. Missouri was a big state. Of course, they came from Pennsylvania. They were created in Pennsylvania. The American Duroc was also created in Pennsylvania. Uh, in New Jersey, New York, that area. Um, but they were farmer's hogs. And then they just started line breeding them and made a breed. I mean, that's really what they were. They were farmer's hogs. Yeah, yeah. And um, they just used what worked, and they created a breed from it. And then you started a registry, and then probably everything went downhill. But <laughs> <laughs> right. who knows? But, yeah. <laughs> um, but, you know, with genetics, I think that uh, the most important part is that you're getting the result at the end. And that result is that you're getting something that has good fat quality, something that has excellent meat quality, good mothering qualities, a good grow out. That's a really big thing, you know. Mm-hmm. Eight months instead of six months, that's a lot more feed, man. Yeah. And you don't think that way. Oh, it only takes eight, nine months. And I'm like, man, that's, that's, nine, that's three extra months of feed. You know, and three extra months of rent. You know, they're renting your property. So, you know, you got to think of it that way. Like, you know, that's, and that's more labor. Those little things add up. You know, if you start throwing 10 cents in a jar every day, it's going to add up. And uh, those things add up big. And that's why we brought in a little bit more modern. And then that's why we're crossing them onto something else. Hmm. You know, on the reds onto the whites. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's good. That's good. So are you, is, uh, I know you don't just raise out seed stock. You guys also sell feeders, but you also do direct to consumer. You kind of have the gamut covered as far as what you're doing with your post-production of your hogs, right? Yeah, I do. I mean, if it were, if it weren't for 14 years ago when I bought a boar and two gills and I fell in love with breeding, I would never be breeding. Let's put it that way. <laughs> right. Um, it's just a, it's a love affair that I have. I tell most people like, it's probably best to buy feeder pigs or if you want some sows, there's a certain amount of sows that you need and you can just AI them because you don't really need a bore up to a certain amount. I'm sorry. It's just a waste of time. The pencil doesn't work. Um, and so, yeah, I sell feeder pigs to people that I advise that way. And then, you know, there's some people that will want to buy several boars at a time because they have a, you know, a hundred sows. Um, and so, um, and then I sell direct to consumer, um, at farmer's markets. I sell to chefs. Um, I've gotten into some grocery stores and we're trying to build that up a little bit. You know, we're, we're really wanting to do more shipping. Um, cause let's face it, people want the food on their doorstep. Mm-hmm. Now they don't have time to, I've just realized that this week again, people just don't have time to come out here and pick up stuff. You know, they want, they really do need it delivered and we don't know how to go about that. You know, you have to pencil that out too. Is it worth the $50,000 reefer unit van? Is it, or is it better to UPS it to the locals or, you know, you have to take your time, don't move quick and pencil it out, breathe on it a little bit. You know, that's the one thing that I think pigs has taught me that a lot of patience, Mm. You know, they, they teach, they're an earth animal, they're connected to the earth, and if you want a pig to move fast, you'll learn a quick lesson. <laughs> so, you know, things just move slow with pigs, 
and you have to, you know, you know, like when you're even moving a pig, you have to go, okay, I got to move that pig next week. <laughs> right. What do right. I need to set up now to get that pig moved next week? Yep. You know, you're always predetermining every move with hogs because it's when you try to move them instantaneously. That's when everything seems to go wrong. Yep. Exactly. Um, and you know, the, it should be like that in business too. You know, I don't want to move too quickly. And um, so, you know, I've went from th almost 30 sows to down to 10 last year um, because some of the sows sucked and I just got rid of them and I just kind of started over. Things just are constantly shifting and changing. And it's the same with breed stock. It's the same with feeder pigs. Sometimes I love selling feeder pigs. Sometimes I hate it. Hmm. You know, um, <clears throat> it just depends on on the customer, on the clientele and how good you are at getting those pigs ready for to be successful. So, yeah, we do a little bit of everything. So looking at all of that, uh, and obviously, again, the diversity there that helps with cash flow and, and reaching into these markets, and I assume most of your, your sales markets when it comes to the actual finished product is going into Nashville and, and that area, that outlying area? Uh, primarily, we sell to small towns outside of Nashville oh, okay. where the – um, you know, that's kind of where the consolidation of money's at is actually not inside Nashville. It's on the outskirts of Nashville. Mm -hmm. And those are the markets um, that you can get direct to consumer relations in Nashville. That's chefs. You know, that's because it's this the new L.A. I mean, you know, all the top chefs are there. So you're you're beating down doors and trying to do everything you can to get contracts with these guys which somebody else already has contracts on. And um, you're trying to find the new guy, the new chef, the new restaurant, so you can get in there before the other guys are already in there. <laughs> you have to convince them that, you know, your meat is the best meat. Um, that's a that's a very competitive game yeah. in a, um, a high connoisseur foodie um, market. That's a very competitive game. But once you're in, you're usually in if you have a good product with yeah. a good price point yeah and, and that raises an interesting question so you obviously sounds like you don't have a lot of spare time so so how do you how no. do you manage being the farm are you the farmer in the salesman have you gotten to the point you've got a, a team or is it just you and your wife just just humping no i have seven? we have a team i run okay. outdoor operations jen runs administration marketing um we have a manager that manages the farm and then we have part-time employees because employees are only worth about part-time. Um, it's just life's too dynamic nowadays for to find someone to work full-time. Um, so we have several part-time people, which actually works really well for us, um, that come in. But, you know, most of that work is just landscape work, weed eating, flipping beds. That's mostly gardens. The pig stuff uh, is fairly simple. They, It's a fairly simple system most work happens whenever you're cutting pigs weaning pigs or just loading out a trailer to go somewhere um but that's not it's really not a whole lot of work i mean you know uh, on the pig end you know we're not moving things around all the time there are lots you know the the hogs the growers move through the woods the sows basically stay in gestation lots the boars are in deep bedded barns and they come out whenever they're needed, and um, and that's really about it. It's it, it it couldn't be any other way on this property to tell you the truth. Yeah. Um, that's 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 how we do it. So yeah, we that's the framework of our uh, organization as far as labor is concerned. Um, but yeah, no, I'm not out there pulling weeds. I have other people doing that, <laughs> right. you know. But I am very very big part of all the hog operation yeah um that i mean the hog operation is me people help me yeah do so, that so are you... i hire young backs to do all the other stuff right you right. know it, they're young it's a young person's game and i'm 51 now and i'm still in pretty good shape but i just don't really want to go out there and do that stuff so um i hire people to do the things i don't want to do so okay. yep well, that makes sense. I mean, and that you and I are the same age, yeah. so that that definitely makes sense, man. There's there's wisdom in that age, and there's wisdom in knowing when your age is the point where it's smarter for other kids, younger backs to do do the hard work and do the stuff. 
uh, like you said, that if you can work on your business, not in your business, then you're, you're have the opportunity to keep it growing and keep it moving in the right direction. Yeah. That's what we say around here. I try to create, we, we're trying to create a business, not a job. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, that was the whole point is like, we want, we don't want a job. <laughs> we want a business. Yeah. Well, <laughs> and you- I think a lot of farms, you know, that, that brings into a really important part is the business of farming. And man, if you're going to go into farming, you better understand the business first um, and foremost. And that marketing's next and farming's like third, mm-hmm. you know, because if not, then you're really fighting a losing battle and you got to learn how to get all your cost of goods sold. You got to figure out all your prices. You're always trying to figure that out, always tweaking it. You never know exactly how much pork, you know, average cost of a pound of your product is. But at least you're trying mm-hmm. and it gives you some sort of framework to work off of so that you can make really good projections and have pretty good ideas as to what you're going to bring in. And then that helps you to figure out what's the projected infrastructure, you know, budget, what's what can you spend? What can you not spend? That kind of stuff. You know, just you got to really nail the business, create a business, not a job. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's 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 wisdom there, because I. In, in my experience uh, in, in marketing and business consulting that I think right next to the farmer as the worst businessman usually is a doctor. So you've got, you've got that the end of the spectrum. Doctors normally don't know how to run their office, so they hire somebody to be an office manager, and a farmer is the same way. They work themselves to death, and, and if they don't right. get somebody in there that knows what to do, then they go to an early grave broke. So, Yeah, that's just not the way I want I I think that you know farming, like Joel Salden and a lot of other people say, it's a we should be getting paid. We should be, you know, we should be able to go take a vacation. We should be able to, you know, afford a decent truck at least. Yeah. I mean, you know, we should be able to afford these things. And I think that the missing element there is having the right customer, but also being a businessman, you know, or a businesswoman. That's the key. That, that's seriously the key. And, um, yeah, that's kind of where we're at. <laughs> yeah, yeah, excellent, excellent. Well, and some of the stuff that you put in the pre-screen, I, I want to ask you, because I've also been seeing on social media, you guys are kind of launching some new things as well, but you're you're moving into some of this high-end charcuterie and even offering some training through that, correct? Yeah, so we've had uh, Doug and Andy out from Han Hewn Farm mm-hmm. before, and I've taken a couple courses with them, and you know, life gets in the way and, you know, I'm still waiting for the charcuterie to stick, but I've done some prosciuttos and I've done, uh, I've, I've done several nose to tail butcheries out here on my own, but we're seeing like, there's a possibly good market there and we don't know for sure, but we're pretty confident there is, especially in our area, but also just with inside the nation, you know, United States shipping, um, and there's not many people doing it and the people that are doing it are doing it well. And they just started a few years ago and they're kind of taking the world by storm. And you're like, Whoa, that's might be a good area to be in, you know, to, uh, to kind of look at the marketing of it, do some feasibility studies, which we're doing. Um, and you know, we've also handed out for, uh, prosciutto at our, you know, for free at our, markets and people are like you know we even had a guy ask us if you ever ever want an investor let me know (laughs) you know i mean and we're like whoa okay so there's some red flags happening we're considering uh moving into those areas definitely but the problem is is how do you do it you know i'm not gonna start a slaughterhouse i'm not gonna start you know i'm not gonna be able to do a kitchen and do all that work myself um, how do you do it? And that's the biggest hurdle that I see right now. The, you know, there's, it's very rare that you have anybody that has the kitchen that's been certified to do those types of, of cures. I'm super rare actually. And, um, the only ones that are available are like smoking goose up in Indiana. There's some out West. There's of course, I think one or two in, uh, California, but there's just not many places to go. So, the feasibility study would involve that as well. Like, how do you even get this thing off the ground? We know that our prosciutto tastes good, but that really doesn't mean much. <laughs> you know, um, you have to find out whether or not it's even feasible to do. 
and it might not it might not even be worth it. But um, we are looking into that and doing the studies um, that are needed, the marketing surveys, the, the feasibility studies to see if it would be viable. Yeah, that's man, that's great. That's that's the thing. You keep adapting, keep looking, keep growing. There's there's so much benefit from that. It it, it keeps you sharp, and it just uh, you know it keeps you keeps you engaged in case something comes along that that throws you off your course. You've got you've got other opportunities. That diversification is really really key. Correct. Yeah. Well, yeah, me... I think ad- adaptation is the key word there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I'm always... an adaptive farmer. <laughs> yeah, I always joke. You know, uh, tell my boys all the time. You know, think fastball and adjust for the curve. That's that's the way you go through life. <laughs> completely. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, I got while well, we got a little more time, I, I did want to talk about some of the infrastructure uh, improvements you've made and some of the things that um, you've invested a lot of time and a lot of energy in to make the property as efficient as the property can be, and, and obviously still additional growth opportunities there. But uh, talk about that for a little bit, if you don't mind, the, the improvements that you've done, kind of why you've 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 done so much with water management and, and all the other things you've put into play there. Yeah, so the, you know, basically the clear cut left it denuded. It looked like, a, you know, the Sahara Desert. It was horrible. And, um the rain we get here is probably similar to some of the rain events you get. We get these crazy rain events of 18, 20 inches in 24 hours, mm-hmm. you know, and we're just watching that happen and going, okay, we really need to consider how to conserve the water that's hitting this landscape in order to combat the erosion, but also to help with, um, fires we have fires here then fires grow fast go faster up an incline than they do going down an incline um so we're at the top of the ridge and then you know using ponds to store water for wildlife and also just for um um basically wildlife mostly but also to store water to recharge the groundwater so that we we know that our water is constantly being recycled back into the ground instead of going down the hill into the creek the, you know that whole route right, you know yeah. down to the down to the river down yeah. to the ocean messing everything up on the way with silt and exactly. all kinds yeah. of grime taking a ton of the um, farm with you every time yeah yep and so we built we brought in dozers and excavators i do i've done most of all the work myself and built uh, ponds. There's like, I don't know, there's uh, four pretty good sized ponds. No, f- yeah, four pretty good sized ponds. Um, they're all connected by swales and they're what we call uh, bench swales. So they're actually, you can traverse them as well. So think of like a, a terrace meets a swale. <laughs> kind of, you know, basically it's a terrace, mm. but they're all slightly off contour on about one in 400 drop. Um, and then they fill up ponds along the way. The road actually is along the center of the ridge. It collects water off of the ridge into small pocket ponds that are then used as, um, as wallers by the pigs. And then those overfill and go into, you know, secondary swales, which catch the water and then go into ponds. We've used the pigs to seal some of those ponds. Um, so I think all in all, you know, we have them from, oh, don't, I don't know, 20 feet wide, 20 feet around, you know, to, uh, 50, 60, 70 feet around, um, ponds, catch basins. And the idea of the small ones was that it's based on, um, vernal pools, which are in the forest ecosystem. When a tree falls down, it creates a, a, a dent in the ground you know the root all comes out and there's a hole well those fill up over time with water in the spring rains then that brings the amphibians that brings all the um everything that wants to drink out of it it brings wildlife to those areas and they're a very important part of the forested ecosystem and so thinking like an ecosystem you know we were thinking man we got to protect these waters we got to make sure they're clean by the time they get down to the springs and the creeks. 
So we did all that earthworks up front. And um, now you can't even tell. Most people don't even know they're there. Um, but they do fill up and they still work really well. We have fruit and nut trees planted all along the, the swales. Um, and, you know, those are, once again, some of the trees that I mentioned earlier, pears, plums, peaches. I mean, everything we could get our hands on that I could graft, that I could get seed for, I did it, you know. Um, I learned all that just by doing it. And then, uh, and then the house, you know, the houses and the cabins are all naturally built um, out of dirt and mud and all that kind of stuff, you know, um, and round poles. So yeah, it's it's an interesting landscape. It's it's really hard to read. Most of the people that come here can't even really tell what's going on, <laughs> you know. And I I would hate to even say. Well, actually, I could say that my manager probably doesn't know half of what's going on um, because it's so dynamic. And we've moved from section to section to section to section. And then we go back to old sections and go, oh, yeah, that's right. We planted plums here. I forgot, you know, or, oh, shoot, I planted apple tree here. I don't even I forgot all about that. You know, that happens quite often. <laughs> oh, that's great. Um, and it, it brings me back to moments in the landscape, you know, when the kids were five and the landscape was denuded and we're planting all these crazy things. So there's a story just by walking the landscape, you know, it's, it's pretty phenomenal. Um, it's a lot to manage though. <laughs> yes. Yes. I'm, I'm sure I, I, I've come to learn that over time as well, that um, when you, when you have acreage, it's, it's tough to keep track of and, and, and keep, keep in a certain situation. Like you said, everything on this side of the Mississippi wants to return to deciduous forest and and man yeah that that really resonates with me because that seems like that's all i do I, I could never with without the help of the pigs and other animals that there's no way in the world i could keep up with what i've cleared and and because it's going to return and return overnight it seems like yeah and pigs are you know they're the perfect animal for those systems hmm. i mean if you want to clear land don't bring in a goat bring in a pig exactly i mean they root up the things the the goats are just going to eat the tops and move on right you know they're going to urinate it they're going to poop on it and they're going to eat the tops and it's going to grow back faster exactly. than last year just be bushier you yep. know a pig will <laughs> knock it out of the ground you just throw corn out there some some sour mash feed yep shoot they'll take it out of the ground yep. they'll clear land people yep. say that like all the time like i can't believe how clear underneath your woods are i'm like yeah it's the hogs yep. you know they they make they'll make a silver pasture quick Yep. Let's put it that away. Yep, I've got an auto. It's just they can also do a, a heck of a lot more damage, right? Um, than you could ever imagine, <laughs> right. and it happens. It's a pig farm, yeah. you know. It's a pig farm. Yeah, so, yeah, and, and that's the thing. I, I I like what you said about. I mean, goodness, there's so many things to unpack there. But but what you said about the the slope of the land. There's so much benefit to slope, but obviously there's challenges to slope. There's things you do to try to mitigate. Uh, issues, but erosion is erosion. Everything's eroding. You know, that's the reason why the, the yeah. place called New Orleans, because it's erosion from everything upstream. Um, but yeah, on, on our slope, we're doing what we can to mitigate that erosion from the pigs um, while we, we do other things. And, and like I said, the ecosystem building, putting in that, putting in that water catchment, all that, and bringing those wetland creatures back just totally enhances the land and i love what you said about st charging up the the water bank and and that is so huge especially your know, water is becoming more and more of a hotbed issue and using some of these old school practices that have been around well since you know since god made everything and these practices have been around yeah. so it's it's you know taking advantage of that and saying hey we're not only maintaining the water and holding it so we're keeping it from eroding as it comes ripping down off the mountain but we're using it to to be cleaner water. We're using it for livestock. We're using it just for growing better, uh, you know, uh, flora in, in the in the forest. It's incredible. Yeah, I um, I have fifty acres, and within that boundary, I am the steward of, or we are the steward of the land, and especially the water. Yeah. And then without the water, there's really not. I I can't really do anything. And, you know, there's water above and then there's water below. And you're the steward of both of them. There's land underneath your feet, too. You know, so 
whatever you're putting in the water above and doing up above is going to be going into the water below. And then I'm pumping that out and drinking it and, you know, watering my hogs with it and all that stuff. So I want that well to make sure it's always recharging within my own responsibility. And that's what I steward, you know, and the trees, they're just big things of grass. Let's think of it that way. You know, people talk about pasture and I think that's great, but hogs and trees, man, I mean, that's just the way to go for me. I've never, ever seen a better system. Now, if you put them out on grass, they'll eat the heck out of it. Of course they will. And, and they do really well there. I've been to Jordan Green's place, and I was just blown away. Hmm. You know, completely different system, very similar in a lot of respects. But, wow, you know, those hogs take down some grass. And you just don't think of it that way, but that's what they do. But those systems, you know, it's you just got to find the system that works for you, you know, and take a little here, take a little from there, take a little from you, take a little from me, take a little from – all over the place and just find out what works for you and just do your best at the end of the day they're hogs and they mess all kinds of stuff up you know and that's just a fact (laughs) so try to mitigate that the best you can (laughs) and if you keep them in a fence you're doing a good job (laughs) (laughs) that's right small victories for sure yeah with a pig yeah small victories all day excellent excellent well, Cliff, I, I, I want to wrap up with something I ask everybody. And, man, I really appreciate your time. Like I said, I, I know I could talk to you for another two hours easily, but um, I want to be sensitive to your time and, and, and that. But but let me ask you something. So you, you've obviously been around pigs for a while. What, what do you think is your favorite part about raising pigs? I mean, what what's really just resonated with you over these years? Heroin them. Yeah, the babies. Yeah. The excitement you get coming up to it, the disappointment you get, the um, that there's just nothing better and more satisfying than walking out there and seeing 10, 12 pigs or six or seven pigs on nursing on a mama. You didn't do anything. You you're just drinking your coffee. You woke up in the morning. You're not pulling pigs. You're just going out there and there's just piglets on the ground nursing on mama. There's nothing better than that. that. There's just nothing better, and that—that's what got me going. It's like you're a midwife, you know. You're—you're you're looking forward to that. You're out there rubbing her. You're talking to her. You're doing everything you can for weeks that are coming up to it. Those sows are just everything to me, and um, I'm consistently like, even at the end of the day, I'll take a shower. I may lay down for a minute or whatever. But then I'll get back up and I'll go out before dark and I'll go say hey to everybody. I'll walk around. They're that close. And and then, you know, when they're coming up to Farrowing, those little piglets are so cute. <laughs> There's just something really bonding and special about that that I just – I don't think that anybody can ever take that away from me. I told my wife and everybody that knows me knows this. It's just not – I would have to be literally incapable of walking – to get rid of my hogs. Yeah. I mean, I just, even if I moved somewhere else and I had a little place, I'd have still two sows out back. Yeah. <laughs> I, I just, I, there's just something so special about it. And when you fall in love with that, then you'll understand, you know, you'll understand why it's so beautiful to breed hogs and, uh, why they're so special. And, um, yeah, it, it brings tear to my eyes to tell you the truth. Yeah. It's just what I love. Awesome. There's nothing been more uh, most amazing in my life than hogs, and I, I never thought I would say that in my life. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. My friends think I'm crazy, you know, but that's just the fact. Uh, that's it. Yep. Uh, yeah, I've got several people that call me the crazy hog guy, so I know exactly what you're talking about, man. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Well, if if people want to find out more about Pig and Leaf Farm, where can they find you online? Yeah, so uh, I'm at pigandleaf.com, of course, and then we have at pigandleaf on Instagram. We have pigandleaf on um, on Facebook. That's about it. We don't have a YouTube channel. We don't have any of that stuff. Um, and then my breeding, I do a lot of my breeding stuff at, at Davis American Duroc on Instagram and on Facebook. That just tells you what I'm up to, gives you pictures of what I'm doing, it's kind of like a side shoot of, of pig and leaf. 
Um, I didn't want my pig and leaf, pig and leaf. Uh, that's kind of curated, you know, that mm-hmm. Instagram, that's kind of special pictures and they look good. And my wife's all into that, you know, it's got to look good, you know, all the alcohol. <laughs> right. yeah. So I don't want it all filled with pigs. <laughs> I yeah. So I have at the Davis American deer rock and, um, yeah. And then we're at the Columbia farmer's market in Tennessee, in Columbia, Tennessee. And then we sell, um, we just sell throughout the the whole Nashville, uh, whatever that thing's metropolitan or I don't even yeah. know what it is anymore. Right. Yeah. Urban sprawl. Yeah. It, the, the, <laughs> yeah. The Nashville overtaken. Yeah. 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 That's great. Well, man, I definitely appreciate you coming on and, and enjoyed talking with you and, and look forward to maybe speaking with you again soon. Same here. I'm, I'm all down for it. Let's do it. All right. Well, thank you very much, Troy. All right, man. I pray you have a good day. Well, I really appreciate Cliff coming on the podcast. He's got a lot going on. Be sure to check out his social media. He's very active there, posts a lot about his farm and what he's doing with Duroc. Um, Very, very interesting. And I like seeing what he's got going on there. As I mentioned at the beginning, we're probably going to have him back on and drill down on some specific topics. Well, before we wrap up, just wanted to remind you all, we've got our Patreon uh, account. Uh, Please consider supporting that if you would. That just... Helps keep me going, helps keep me motivated, especially on <laughs> crazy uh, months like this last month. Um, appreciate all your support for you guys, and I uh, appreciate you all recognizing just how much effort it takes to put in to get all this stuff going. And I'm, I'm trying to figure out what's next for the Pastured Pig website. Would love some input from you all, and just see what we can do to make that a, a better resource. It's uh, getting a little daunting uh, so would love to have some help if anyone would love to write some articles or even if you do YouTube or blogs or whatever, and we can just start sharing links from that. Um, but just reach out to me, Troy at Red Toolhouse, if you've got some ideas or suggestions. And uh, and also be sure to jump on our Facebook group there, The Pastured Pig. It's, uh, it's growing a little bit each week. We keep adding more and more people and good discussions going on there as well. All right. Well, I pray everyone have a great week. Y'all take care. We hope you have enjoyed this episode of the Pastured Pig Podcast. To learn more about our podcast or to submit topics or recommend guests for future episodes, visit redtoolhouse.com.